Father in heaven, thank you for a beautiful, sunshiny morning, and we're always grateful for life and health and the opportunity to serve you. And sometimes, Lord, we struggle with, uh, with those health issues, but we're grateful that you still care about us and that you lead us moment by moment. So, Lord, as we meet together, may your Holy Spirit guide us, and may we be drawn to service and to being able to learn how to serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we left off yesterday and talking a little bit about caregivers and uh, working uh, for the care of the sick and needy. And one of you came to me yesterday and indicated you'd had experience yourself on the receiving end of that. And uh, that was that's an interesting direction that we have to go. Um, I also mentioned a little bit about conflict. We're going to get into that a little bit uh, later today. The next chapter in your, uh, in your book is talking about business managers. And uh, you may not have thought about it that way, but the responsibilities of deacons and deaconesses has, in the more recent traditional experience of the deacons and deaconesses, has centered around the physical plant of the church. You know what I mean by that? In other words, the deacons are usually the ones that are assigned to make sure that the physical plant of the church is being taken care of. And that is the one focal point that has carried itself into the responsibility of the deacons. That means opening the church, closing the church, making sure it's locked, um, and maybe mowing the lawn, you know, arranging for janitors or being the janitor, I don't know, it depends on how that local church all works out. And I say being the janitor, if you've got more than one deacon, you might share that load. I don't, whatever it is to take care of God's house, to care for the physical plant, to maintain it when there are repairs that need to be done, and some of those kinds of things. But one aspect that hasn't been thought of is the oversight of uh, some of the uh, of the uh, management of the church. As Elder, uh, Elder Mitchell has become the uh, president of our conference here in the last uh, few months, I know one of the things that he said to some of the committees that he works with is that we don't, ministers are not trained to be business people. And I've had a lot of lay people over the years say, you pastors are not trained to be business people. I don't know how they got to that conclusion. How ever did they figure that out? Now, there are exceptions to that. There are some who have been trained, and I've heard of pastors who've gone and got a master's in business administration and, and some of those kinds of things. But 99% of pastors don't do that. And there's good reason not to. The real calling is to ministry, to be a pastoral minister, and to care for the needs of the congregation, to spread the gospel message, to preach the truth, to share in Bible studies and in evangelistic meetings and all of that. And that's a full-time job. But if you really take all the tasks that church members sometimes think is on the docket for the pastor, there's about five full-time jobs in that list of material in there. And then church members say, well, pastor, you get paid to do that. Well, how come you can't get it done? 
And part of it is that's not really what God intended for the pastor to do. And when pastors get into the mode where the church places the responsibility for everything on their shoulder, I'll tell you what begins to happen. They burn out. Ministers in North America, both Adventist and non-Adventist, about a third of pastors who start ministry don't finish ministry. And many of them fail to stay in ministry after a relatively short period of time. The stress is terrible in terms of what happens unless you have made a full commitment to the Lord and you recognize your call. Now, some people get into ministry who shouldn't be in ministry, all right? And that's part of the proving process. That's why we don't ordain pastors and when they just walk in the door and say, I'd like to be a pastor. Okay, we'll ordain you and off you go. Now, we ordain them after four years because that gives time to prove their ministry, as Ellen White says we should. They should prove their ministry, and that is that they are recognized for accomplishing what God has called them to do. All right, all of that to say that one of the areas that needs to be cared for for the church is the business management, and I don't mean it's not a business that you're managing. It is the financial structure of the church that needs to be cared for. Now, there's a little bit of history in here. If you look on page 63 in the first paragraph, it says, DeWeese, that is an author, makes reference to the work of R.B.C. Howell, a Baptist pastor, whose writings were very influential to the Baptist church during the 1800s. DeWeese says, although Howell favored deaconesses, he influenced the Baptists in the 1800s to assign administrative business and financial matters to male deacon bodies, by thereby excluding women. Now, that's just a little bit of a history. It's not a theological statement or whatever, but he's just pointing out the issue in relationship to business managers. And then on the bottom of page 65, he goes into his conclusion, which goes over to page 68. And he says, it may be concluded from the review of the works in chapters 7 to 11 that the New Testament reveals little information about the existence of female deacons or deaconesses and the role that they played in the first century church. In that Greek word, then he goes on and he talks a little bit more about that. But then he goes on into page 67 and... Uh, he says that, and he's speaking historically now, he says the fourth and final role is primarily carried out by a board of all male deacons is the role of business managers. Baptist churches began assigning this role to their deacons in the 1800s. They're influenced by the cultural trends of American society to adopt this style of management. During the second half of the 19th century, the all-male corporate board of directors emerged. As the churches embraced this style of management, deacons drifted away from ministry and focused their attention on management. The exclusion of women deacons or deaconesses and management decisions was a factor in the decline of deaconesses during the 19th century. Some churches still assign the role of business managers to their deacons. Others believe that deacons are for service, not to run the church. Now, I, I, I really, I, all that particular section is doing is giving you a little bit of a history, but he comes back to these particular areas later on, and I'd like you to look over at 
page, where was it? 20. Chapter 20, page 153. Sorry about that. And here is where he's talking about, he, in that chapter on that we were just reading, he was talking about the history. He was not trying to tell us what we should or should not do or encouraging us in job descriptions. So in chapter 20, he's now into the section where he's talking about job descriptions. We'll come back to some of that, but he talks about deacons and deaconesses as physical plant managers. The first paragraph on page 153 says, The Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual and the Manual for Church Officers present a vivid description of the deacons' responsibilities in regards to maintaining church properties. When the deacons perceive this work as being an opportunity to witness for God, they will count doing it a privilege. And uh, then they list a number of things here. Number one at the bottom of the page, oversee the janitorial work, being certain that the church, including grounds as well, cared for. Number two, see to such needed repairs as broken windows, etc. Number three, bring to the church board or finance committee suggestions for major repairs and improvements. Four, see to the care and proper distribution of the church hymnals in the sanctuary and have them properly placed and just basically keeping the sanctuary uh, free of litter and that kind of thing. Five, have the offering envelopes properly placed in the rack. Six, have the pulpit furniture properly placed, microphones checked, etc. Seven, open the church building before, after, uh, should, before, before regular, regular meetings and locked after the service is concluded. So what you're looking at here, and then going on into page you know, 155, and the number of items that are listed there, including proper ushering and taking notes of visitors, number six, appreciate that one a lot. I'm on page 156, uh, visitors and newcomers, number five, checking carefully at each service to see if nothing is lying about to mar the appearance. I mean, you just get a sense here that we're dealing with a number of things, from the physical plant to also what's happening during that service. Now, my wife likes to tell a story, and I think when she was a little child somewhere, she went, there were deacons, and they had long rods. And I can't remember if it happened to her or it was happened to family or whatever, but the deacons would go around on Sabbath morning, you know what they did with those rods. If you fell asleep, they'd tap you on the head or swat you upside, I don't know what they did. In this day, that's probably called assault, but <laughs> in those days, it was, you know, keeping you awake and whatever the case may be. Now, I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just saying it talks about reverence and it talks about some of the things that are, uh, uh, need to be cared for, not only uh, the physical plant, but what's happening during the church service and caring for that. Now, again, please, on the recording and everyone, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying that that's what has happened in relationship to deacons. But the one thing I do want you to recognize with deacons and deaconesses, one of the major ministries that you can accomplish on Sabbath is noticing who's in church on Sabbath morning. And I'm talking about members and non-members. Somebody in your church should be taking attendance. If you're not taking attendance, you don't care about your people. Did I really say that? On camera, on recording. I said it that way to make a point, and I know you care about your people, and that's part of the reason you're here. 
But I said that because I want to get your attention. When we really care about people, we want to know when they're not there. And when they're not there, we want to know why. I don't mean gossip-wise. I mean caring-wise. Now, if somebody's gone, you know, if they've been there six months and they're gone on Sabbath, you don't need to call the police and find out why they're not there, all right? And whether it's the church police or the physical police or whatever, don't panic, but take note. They weren't here today. And you might ask around, does anybody know why, you know, Karen wasn't here today? Well, Karen wasn't here today because she had an emergency in her family. Her father's sick and she had to travel to Florida. All right, everybody knows everything's well in a sense that Karen has not abandoned church or she's not sick herself, but she's taking care of a family member. But what does that tell you also? Maybe just a nice note. We understand that your father's sick, wants you to know we're praying for you. What can we do to help you? That is caring, isn't it? After they find out she's on vacation, you know, leave her alone till she gets back and say, we hope you had a good vacation, all right, or whatever. You just, you, you are just showing caring. But if the second week she's not there and somebody, you ask, and you know, I thought uh, she had to take care of her father. Yeah, I heard she was back, but she's not here. And third week she's not there. And the fourth week she's, I mean, I wouldn't wait that long. Because on the second week, that's an alarm unless you know why she's gone. Or you've had a conversation with her and she's told you that she's not going to be back for a couple of weeks because even though her father is doing all right, she's got to take care of some things and is going to be traveling. I mean, as long as you know, but as soon as you know that that person's been gone for a while, it's your job to be deciding what to do to minister to her and to be identifying what her needs may happen to be. We know this, that the longer a person stays away from church, the harder it is for them to get back. And so many people have said, I stopped attending church, and nobody, including the pastor, shame on us, ever called me to find out how I was doing. And one of the problems that we have is that sometimes we get word, well, she, they're not coming, you know, Karen's not coming because she's mad at the pastor, or she's not coming because uh, she had an altercation, a verbal altercation with Sister, uh, Sister Smith. And I hope none of you have the name Sister Smith, okay? <laughs> and whatever the case may be, and then we, then we kind of dismiss it, oh, I don't want to get involved in a conflict, and I don't want to whatever. And that's when people start to drift away from the church and literally nobody cares enough to go and deal with that particular issue. The Board of Deacons and Deaconesses should be meeting from time to time, usually once a month is my recommendation. I know that in our busy schedules today, people want one more meeting like another hole in the head. But the tr truth is that we've got to do our work and we've got to figure out how to improve what we do and Part of it is doing our work of caring for people. And when we get together, deacons and deaconesses are spiritual leaders, so when they start talking about the needs of people, they're not gossiping, right? I didn't say they won't gossip. I'd say they shouldn't be gossiping. It should be, what do we do to meet the needs of those people? During this last month, who have we found out has some issues that we have not yet addressed? Do we need to have a better plan for addressing those so that we can care for them on a regular basis? 
dealing with that issue. Now, you notice that none of this did I ever say that you needed to talk to the elders or the pastor. Because a lot of this work is caring for the church. And I believe that's part of the business of the church. Now we'll get back to that. I've strayed a little bit from the job description there, but I am making that point. So are you looking for a folder? Yeah, right here. And make sure you got today's notes as well. And uh, so I, I want to make sure that we understand that I'm broadening the horizon, but I'm trying to place the emphasis in the most important places that we need to deal with. So getting back a little bit on track, we'll come back to what I was talking about in, in a little bit here. But business managers, not so much running the finances of the church as being a part of the board because the head deacon and head deaconess are members of the board. They might even be part of the finance committee if that is the way they decide to structure that finance committee. The treasurer, the pastor, the head elder, maybe the head deacon need to be on the finance committee. Uh, that kind of uh, whatever, if you have a church that really needs that. But in most small churches of 100 and less members, they don't need a finance committee and don't function that way. They just do it with a board. So the deacons and deaconesses are part of that process, not running it, but assisting with it. Do you understand? And all the physical plant, all the things that are listed there. Now, let me just go to the election process for a moment. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. Uh, just to remind you, look at the church manual. Make sure you have a church manual. Read the church manual. Understand how the election process goes. You as deacons and deaconesses, and those of you that are elders in this room, please listen to me very, very carefully. You need to know what the election process is and how it is supposed to function in the local church. You need to read the church manual. You need to clarify it with the pastor if you don't know what it is so that you understand what that process is. As a ministerial director and even as a pastor, but as especially as a ministerial director, I occasionally encounter places where an elder takes over the nominating committee process because they happen to be without a pastor at that particular time, but doesn't accomplish the process the way it's outlined in the church manual, and it becomes a mess in the local church because usually that process goes on until it's worked its course and then somebody gets upset about the way it was done which they probably should have gotten upset. Yes, they should actually have gotten upset when the process was going astray in the first place. Now, let me give you an example of this, and it's a little bit of a risk for me to say that because these are very real situations, but you don't know where those real situations are going on, so that's just fine. Um, and, and I'm not blaming anybody, but I am saying we need to know how to function, and if we don't know how to function, then we need to ask so that we don't make these kinds of mistakes. Now, for example, one of the kinds of situations, and this is a fairly common one, is failing to elect the nominating committee way the way the nominating committee is supposed to be elected. The election of a nominating committee is not from the floor on Sabbath morning. Do you hear me? And so you say, Okay, so how is it supposed to be nominated? From the floor on the Sabbath morning, but not the way some people do it. So listen to me. Again, I said that in a way to make a point. 
No, the church manual says that the nominating committee is supposed to be elected by, number one, a, an organizing committee, or I'm trying to remember the exact word, but it, yeah, that's a good word for it. Organizing committee being selected that is going to then choose the nominating committee. So from the floor, through an appropriate process, a vote being taken, those people need to be identified who will choose the nominating committee. It's a committee to choose the nominating committee. But what often happens when there are mistakes made is that someone will call for who's going to be, uh, who do you want on the nominating committee? I am opening the floor now for nominations for those that are going to be on the nominating committee. So there's this many people in church as we have in our class right now. And so who wants to make a nomination who's going to be on the nominating committee? Now Fred has an agenda already. Sorry Fred, you don't mind being my guinea pig here today. Fred has an agenda today, and he wants Greg to be on the nominating committee because not, he, doesn't, he knows that Greg doesn't like the way the pastor's running the church, and he wants him to be on the nominating committee so that he can make all kinds of changes. So he says, I elect Greg to be, or nominate Greg to be on the nominating committee. Now, everybody else knows that Fred and Greg have got this issue going on about the pastor, and they're trying to be able to deal with that, but nobody has the courage to stand up to Fred. See, if you stand up, Fred, you know you're a big guy, and they're afraid to get in a confrontation with you. Well, I, I, I think we need to see Greg. Okay, you see what I'm saying? Here we are. All right, so they're afraid to stand up to him uh, emotionally. He's uh, I'm not just talking about physically intimidating. You're not physically intimidating. You're a nice guy. You're a big teddy bear, you know. But uh, the truth of the matter is sometimes people are influenced by people's, um, they're intimidated by their personality or by their position or whatever. And when that happens on Sabbath morning, it is totally inappropriate for that to be taking place that way. And now there's a process, there's two options that are listed in the nominee, I mean in the church manual. I really don't want to go much farther than this. I've shared it to give you an idea of what the election process is supposed to be like. Now it's a little further from where I exactly need to be in relationship to how you were elected, but I wanted you to understand that because as leaders of the church, elders, deacons, and deaconesses need to know how the nominating committee is supposed to function to make sure that there's fair representation taking place before the church. And the reason this other committee is chosen first is because then this committee can come together and they can carefully and prayerfully talk about who should be on the nominating committee, select that nominating committee, and then the nominating committee may be there. Now it's possible in a church this small that Fred is still going to be chosen to be on the organizing committee, and he's still going to want to put Greg on the nominating committee, but at least it wasn't manipulated to do that or done in such a way that it didn't have good due process to take care of it because when the organizing committee chooses the nominating committee the nominating committees uh, who that is chosen is got to be cleared through the church and it's had some time to process and for people to share their opinions along the way and it should have a first and second reading so that people who disagree that Greg shouldn't be on that committee have a chance to come to the pastor or the elder or whatever and the chairman of that committee and say, look, 
We love Greg, but don't let him be on that nominating committee. The guy's a, guy's a real scoundrel. He's, you know, sorry, Greg, you know. I better go to something nice here a little bit. Anyway, so the process can be worked through. So uh, let me come to the hand that I just saw here in just a moment. The election of the deacons and deaconesses is through the nominating committee. The qualifications we talked about, um, uh, we talked about that a little bit yesterday. We did, didn't we? Yeah, a little bit, but I might want to come back to that. But anyway, this is a spiritual process, and the work of what a deacon and deaconess is is spiritually based. And then when you are elected to be a deacon, I'll pick on deacons for right now, you're not a deacon until you are ordained, if you have not been ordained. So you may be elected as a deacon, but you are not supposed to function until you are ordained. And if that happens to take a month, you're not a you know, after the officers have started, you still are not a deacon until the day you're ordained. Then you are a deacon. So once you're ordained, you're a deacon and you can function and you can work that way. Now, you know, it probably doesn't hurt for you to take up the offering on Sabbath morning or some of the other functions there because we're usually shorthanded and need people to be involved in all of that. But that I made that point because that really is the way that's supposed to happen and the way it's supposed to get done. The nominating committee should finish its work early enough so that the person who needs to be ordained can be ordained soon enough in the process there. The pastor might not get there for a month and it can't take place immediately. And then when it does take place, he's ready to take over when the new officers come in. So that's the way that needs to happen. Ordination is for life. You do not need to have, you do not need to be ordained again, unless for some reason you strayed away, you had to be rebaptized, you came back to the church, whatever, and then that takes place. But if you go from one church to another, you are not automatically a deacon in that church just because you were ordained over in the other church. You have to be elected by that church where you are now living and attending in order for you to be able to serve. You don't have to be reordained, but you do have to be elected. All right, now the hands that I saw. Where did I see a hand over here? Yes, please. I was going to say, um, we had an instance in our church where... All right. Um, since you, uh, on this videotape and on this, have not identified your name or your location... <laughs> I will say to you that um, I apologize for that because just as I said, your situation is such that you should call for that. And uh, in defense of our pastors, they get busy and sometimes they don't recognize that process needs to be followed. But all of us in the office will remind our pastors frequently, good process brings about good results Bad process brings about bad results, and I have had situations such as I described to you here, and I'll tell you what we've done. We've gone to the church and to the pastor, when it's the pastor doing it, or the elder, and said, you need to start over. Start over. There's too much conflict going on in your church. There's too much struggle going on. That wasn't followed. You're getting bad results because of bad process. Go back and do the process right. Now, we do it kindly, and I don't do it the way I just did it on tape, but we do it in a way that 
helps everybody to grow through the experience and realize that they needed to be doing it that way. So when you encounter that, have the courage to stand up to it. And I want to tell you, if you run into a problem and pastors being human and under life's pressures uh, respond in a way that they shouldn't, but you're having difficulty, that's why you have a ministerial director. And that's not the only reason you have a ministerial director, but that's one of the things a ministerial director is for, is to be able to assist you and help with that process to make sure that good process is followed. Okay, great. What do you do once you say that deacons cannot perform deacons? Yeah, let me explain that. Are you wanting these materials? Okay, all right, just in case you are. All right, so let's... um, Let's talk about that for a moment. For instance, the counting of the tithes. Yes, yes, yes. And because technically you don't have deacons and deaconesses in, in a company. So let me explain what it is that he's asking and, and give you a bit of an answer. We have the way that a church develops is to, uh, if you plant a church, let's say, for example, that the Metropolitan Church in Detroit wants to plant a new church in um, what's a, in Westland, Michigan. Well, I think there's one there. Already. Anyway, let's say Westland. And so they uh, go through the process. They have a group of people meeting down there, and they want the conference now to begin to recognize that this is a group meeting down there with the intention of becoming a church. So they go through that. They come to the conference office. They call the ministerial director. That's my area of responsibility, and I begin to work with them. The first thing they become is a group. A group is of zero to 25 people. Well, obviously, it's got to have one, so or usually three or four. But from zero to 25 is a group. That group has no authority to function. Usually, it's under a mother church that is doing that work and accomplishing that, that particular function. So that's what's going on at that time. And uh, so they're doing that. Uh, uh, they are uh, under the leadership of the pastor, under the leadership of the elders and the deacons of that church, and they are meeting on Sabbath morning. They may be doing some of those kinds of things, but there are no elders in that church unless it's uh, that group, unless it's an elder from the metro church under that auspices or whatever. The next step is that they've been meeting now, let's say, for seven months or a year, and they've now grown from 25 to 50 members that are attending there on a regular basis. And obviously in that time, when you get that number of people together, there's got to be some kind of organization, right? And that organization has probably been somewhat loose. It's been supported by the local church and helping them. And maybe the pastor has identified... Um, you know, Greg is being the leader of that group and, and they're functioning that way and they might answer to the church board at Metro, but now they're ready to be a company. And they actually apply to the conference to be a company. That's the in-between step from group to becoming a full-fledged church themselves. Churches are autonomous. That means that they have all the leaders in the church. They can fi- they can function financially without assistance. They pay their own bills. They take care of all that. This is something like a child to a teenager to an adult. The company status is like a teenager. Here are the keys to the car, but make sure you're back by midnight, okay? Or 10 or something like that. 
Um, you need some money here. You can have that money, but you know what? You're going to have to clean your room twice as many times now to get that money back. I, you know what I'm saying, all right? So the teenager part of the company process is that officially the church manual says a company has a leader, often called an elder, but we don't use that term in this capacity officially, even though they might be recognized as such. And then there is a treasurer and a clerk. Those are the only officers of that company uh, section. Why? Because the church is growing up. This group is growing up. But it's not yet ready to be on its own. A company has overseeing it the conference. All the members of a group are still members of the Metro Church. All members of a company are members of the conference church. See, they're not on their own, but they have a big daddy, so to speak, watching over them. Technically, the president is the pastor of that company. I said all of that because a lot of people have no clue what that's all about, and I needed you to understand a little bit of how that functions. As a matter of fact, major things that take place in a company cannot be voted on by the church. The church can make recommendations. But for example, if you had a discipline problem in that church and you had somebody that was robbing banks and you needed to disfellowship for them from the church, you do not have the authority in the company to do that. That has to be a recommendation from your company to the conference executive committee. The conference executive committee serves as the board for a company. All right, now with all of that, I can answer his question. He says, what do you do in that particular situation? This is how we function. The church manual does this to, in order to be able to make sure that there's clear oversight and they, you understand a company only has limited authority. But in order to be able to function, you have to pick up some of these duties along the way. You're growing in that. You may be that you have a deacon from the church, from the, what you came from or whatever, and people will often function in that capacity. And in this case, I'll use a real life situation. Greg is a uh, leader of a company in Adrian, but he's not been ordained as an elder. And so we're gonna have an ordination service for him in July. He'll be ordained as an elder and he will be the leader of that particular company there, but he's still under the responsibility of the, of the conference, and he, the oversight is from us, but he does have a pastor, a pastor that helps to oversee it as well. So it's quasi, do you know what I mean by that? It means that they're serving in that capacity. We might ordain a deacon if they reached a point where they needed it in order to facilitate the function. We'd have to look at it on a regular basis and take a recommendation from the pastor. But a lot of things there happen, the Sabbath school leadership and all of that, even though technically you don't have officers that way, you still have to function. Somebody's got to lead Sabbath school. Somebody's got to teach Sabbath school. Somebody's got to take up the offering. Somebody's got to care for some of these needs as the church is developing. All right, it was an important question. It just took a little bit to answer it. No problem, no, no, I'm glad. How many of you have ever been in a company and understood all of that? Okay, some of you did, which was most of you that didn't. Okay, so that's good. All right, let's talk about solving problems and nurturing the membership. I want to talk a little bit about that right now. And uh, some of this we're going to get into here in a little bit. I, I'm going to skip by that part. I want to come to this because we'll come back to that. 
uh, proclaiming the gospel and winning souls. We spent a little bit of time with that yesterday. And uh, this is a major role because you are disciples and you are spiritual leaders. One thing I didn't say yesterday is this. Ellen White tells us in Christian Service, chapter 5, that churches are to be training centers for Christian workers. That means that in a, if, if your church is going to be a training center, which every church, she says, should be a training center, she actually uses the word school, a training school for Christian workers, if it's going to be that, you are going to have to spend some time um, your understanding how a school functions. Think about a school for a moment. A school, let's say that there's a school with three teachers. Does a school with three teachers usually have a principal? Yes. Somebody's in overseeing the teachers, right? Does a teacher, does a school have teachers? By definition, it has teachers and students, doesn't it? It's just assumed. So if the church is supposed to be a training school, does the church have teachers? Yes. So who are the teachers in the school? And? Yes the deacons and the deaconesses, and the other leaders. They might be teaching in their area of specialty. They might be teaching in their area uh, and, uh, more generally, like an elder might be more of a generalist. A pathfinder leader is probably going to be more specifically zeroing in on that area, or a health leader is going to zero in on that. But that training that they're doing is not only conveying information to the congregation like a health leader would, they're also organizing functions for bringing people into the church, but they're also doing something else. This is a training school for Christian workers. All of these departments are trying to reproduce themselves so that when you go off to Florida for six months, somebody else can take your place. Or when you decide to retire, when you've been serving that church for 30 years and you're going to retire to Florida, somebody is trained to do what you used to do rather than the nominating committee or the board saying, you know, George is gone and we don't have anybody to take his place. Oh, he was so good. And now nobody's doing anything to fill that gap because nobody has that training. Where George could have been training somebody all that time and there would have been somebody to take his place. The reason I'm making that point is because a church is a training school, it needs trainers. And that means deacons and deaconesses that are also teaching other people to do that work. But the major function that you do is teaching other people how to share the gospel and how to win souls. And because you're a teacher, you are teaching them to do what you know how to do because you've learned how to do it as well. If you haven't learned how to do it, you need to learn how to do it so that you can also teach. Elders, deacons, and deaconesses are the primary teachers of the local church and the, the major role of the church is winning souls. Therefore, the elders, deacons, and deaconesses need themselves to be soul winners so they can be teaching others how to do soul winning and filling that church. A lot of churches 
in the Michigan Conference and around the North American Division are dying and they are one step away from burial because if you go into those churches, most of the people are 75 years and older. There's nobody under that age and nobody's knocked on any doors, given any Bible studies, helped with any evangelistic meeting or done any soul winning in that community in the last 30 years. That church used to be 200 members and today it's two. Why? Because nobody is making sure that church is growing. Now again, I'm making a statement, I'm generalizing, and I understand there are lots of different circumstances to it. But I hate to tell you this, if you boil it all down, I can tell you chapter and verse of places where that's exactly that case. And I can tell you as a ministerial director, I've closed the doors of churches. And part of it is because of theological conflict, which we're going to talk about tomorrow. In some cases, it's because people move away. But the bottom line is because the church is not sharing its faith. It's not ministering to the community. And you know what? When that church disappears, the community doesn't even know they're gone. Okay? All right, now let's keep going. I've said a little bit about that. Serving during the church services of the church, that's in there. I'm going to go to my... Uh, next thing here, and then I'll pick up some of those pieces if I've left them out. Okay, now I'm going from uh, one, uh, one PowerPoint slides to today's slides, and there are only a few here, so we'll get into this real quick. All right, I want to talk a little bit about conflict management. And I'm going to spend more time on this tomorrow, so I'm just highlighting this. And if for some reason you said, I don't need, I'm not worried about theological conflict, you should be, by the way, um, because it's happening more and more and uh, in, in ways that are distressing. Um, and that's discussion for tomorrow. But we want you to know that the responsibility of a deacon and deaconess is especially to help in this particular area. I'm going to take you to the book in a moment, but I want to go to the slide first of all, and then I'll do some summaries on this. First of all, the role of the deacon and deaconess is to assist the pastor with conflict issues that arise. I'll even go so, so far as to say a lot of conflict can be taken care of by the deacons, deaconesses, and in some cases the elders, that never needs to go to the pastor taking care of behind the scenes. When you find out, conflict is usually between people. Okay? It's not usually between somebody and a boiler. <laughs> it's usually between two people in the church or more people in the church. And the smaller that conflict is, the easier it is to manage. Therefore, I would encourage you to take care of that and to be able to minister in that particular situation by addressing it as soon as it is an issue. Now, sometimes you think, oh, that's just going to blow off. But if it does not blow by, and you'll know fairly soon, it, you need to address it to make sure that it doesn't get any farther. Most conflicts in the local church started out as a couple of people squabbling over something, and then everybody gets on one side or the other for some reason, rather than it just stopping at the beginning and people doing what Bible, this Bible says they should do, following the practices of Matthew 18, go one-on-one -on -one and solve that problem. We have a real problem in our society. We don't know how to do that anymore. And the only way we know to do this is to pull out a gun and start shooting people. 
And that's how bad it has become in our society today. And unfortunately, this happens in churches and even in Adventist churches. So don't underestimate that. By the way, that's a whole other discussion, active shooters, but that's not what I'm here for. Uh, stop clown conflicts before they arise, and that is by helping to encourage the church that if you have a conflict, let's talk about it, you know. Do some education before conflicts even arise, because they will arise. There really is a devil. He is going to try to do something in your church. In every single church, he's going to try to do something. So have a plan. And that plan should include training and teaching ahead of time about the Bible process for solving conflict. When a conflict arise, arises, go and get in it. I recommend a book by uh, Ken Sand. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's a lawyer who's a Christian, has a lot of experience in conflict work and management from a, con a Christian perspective, and he has some amazing stories and principles and ways of dealing with different kinds of conflicts. Really excellent book. I found out about this from one of our pastors who had this in one of his classes and, uh, in school, and I just really do recommend it. You can get it online uh, as an e-book. You can get it as a, uh, a physical book at a Christian bookstore. Uh, you can order it from Amazon. You can get it in all, a lot of different ways, and uh, you would find it to be a very valuable tool. Um, I'll just mention a couple principles here, and then tomorrow we'll spend more time on conflict management, especially as it relates to theological issues. Conflict management is sitting down with people and trying to understand what has caused that problem to arise. People are different, and understanding people is part of being a leader in the church and also how to minister to those people. Talking about the problem is a good place to start. Sometimes our conflicts happen in the heat of the moment. Something comes up. Um, I've had situations where, you know, after church on Sabbath morning, somebody comes up to you and says something, and, and you innocently respond, as I did one Sabbath. Somebody came out and said something to me, and, and I, I'll say innocently because, honestly, I did not know what was going on. But they said something to me and I said, I gave them a response back which was a little bit flippant and that's a little less innocent. That's where sarcasm gets you in trouble, especially as a pastor and you had this flippant answer. And I thought we were talking about some, somebody in more general and I discovered that the person that they were complaining about was themselves. <laughs> and, and their concern about what the pastor, i.e. me, was doing. <laughs> and had done that particular Sabbath, and I realized I'd walked right into a buzzsaw and that kind of problem. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We open our big mouth, we don't think first, why is the person asking this question, and, and all of that, and all of a sudden we've got a brouhaha. And sometimes it's necessary for us to say, I am so sorry. And you know what? Sometimes we have to do that after going home and realizing that you really are sorry and you should have said it sooner. And that means picking up the phone and saying, I'm so sorry, I really shouldn't have said that. It wasn't the right thing to say. And then we often make excuses. I didn't understand what was going on or whatever, but the bottom line is we need to admit we made a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. And kind of go on from there. Most problems can be solved right there. And sometimes you as a deacon or a deaconess, you will either witness that 
And don't step away and just ignore it. Realize this is an opportunity to minister. If you see it happen, you know, prayerfully come in and say, you know, before you leave today, why don't we go into the, the office here or the classroom and let's just pray about this and make sure that it doesn't go any farther than that. You know what? That could stop a lot of conflict before it ever happens. Follow the principles of Matthew 18. If there's only two people involved and they are the only ones that know about it, they have responsibility to solve that between themselves. Not get on Facebook and not get on the phone and not text everybody about the problem before they've had that conversation. If the problem can't be solved, that's not the time to get on Facebook. It's the time to get two or three other people to help to come together and try to find out what you're missing in the problem or what needs to be done to solve that problem. If that problem is so broad that it goes church-wide, then there are times when the church has to address it and deal with that way, that way. But you can solve a lot of problems by realizing that it's not the pastor's job to solve the problems. It's the elders, the deacons, and deaconesses work to be able to work behind the scenes and working in those areas. You may have some questions in regard to that, and we can deal with that in a little bit here. Business uh, stuff I've already talked about. Uh, the election process, we've done uh, that as well. It's the, I've already talked about ordination for life. I should have just gone straight to this program, shouldn't I? Okay, yes, please. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you noticed that I skipped over that, didn't you? Yes, okay. All right, I'm sure you all did. All right, let me come back to that and, and, uh, and, and address that. As I said yesterday, the church manual allows for the ordination of deaconesses. I want you to recognize that uh, in spite of the fact that that is uh, allowed by the church manual, it is still an area of some discussion and, and kind of sorting out where people are in position in relationship to this. Because there are people who see a connection between the issue uh, and the theological issue of the ordination of, of uh, women as pastors uh, together with the issue of the ordination of women as elders and women as deacons. Uh, or deaconesses and, and that whole connection. And it has to do, I'm not discussing the issue, I'm identifying the issue, all right? We're not going to discuss this today because the church has not yet solved this in its entirety, and I don't think you and I will be able to accomplish that. Now, maybe we can, we can put it on video, send it to everybody, and the problem will be resolved, all okay? right? But I only have 15, 20 minutes to do it, so we won't get that done. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. The issue is... Theologically, the core of the issue that creates the issue of contention and conflict is over whether or not the Bible identifies male headship in terms of leadership and the role of women in relationship to that. I'm not going to get into the theology of all of that. I'm just identifying part of the basis for that discussion where that particular piece is. The button, the not the. Uh, Manual does allow for the ordination of deacons and deacon, uh, deaconesses, and that's a reality. If you do that in the local church, don't just assume it. Go to your pastor if you happen to be a lady or even a man who's interested in seeing that happen to somebody in the church. I would encourage you to get to the, um, go to the pastor and have a discussion with them, how they uh, sense this, how they feel about it, how the church is going to feel about it, and be humble about it. 
all right? This is one of the challenges we have is when we people get on a plan, a direction they want to go, and then cause conflict in the church over something that could be handled in a different way. So I just want to set that stage for that, and that's really all I want to say about that today, okay? No. Uh, no, no, not in terms of that sense. In terms of what they're ordained to, yes. If a deacon is ordained to be a deacon, and then they are later elected because they are spiritually growing and they're seen as being a spiritual leader and they become an elder, they have to be ordained to be an elder. Okay? That was actually your question, I think, right? Okay, all right, good. All right, so the process, the election process and all that and the qualifications, they're listed here and, uh, and identified here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to keep going on. Let's talk about solving some problems and nurturing the membership of the congregation. This is, to me, a major area of service for the deacons and deaconesses, and so I want to put a little bit more emphasis on it here before I open it up for questions today. Visiting the sick and shut-ins. I really, we've talked to quite a bit about this already, but I just want to put that on your radar. Put it on your list. Identify it there. Now, is this not in a material that I handed out to you? I'm not understanding that. And the one that I handed out today, is it not in that list? Why did I not hand it out? Did I, did I hand out something today that was the same thing we handed out yesterday? My secretary... All right, I'm really confused. Yeah, yeah, right. I had my secretary copy these off, and the question is, what did I do with the stuff? Well, my apologies for that. I had her oh, copy it off, and I thought for sure I got it here, unless I... I did. It's, it's my problem because she copied it off and she handed them to me. So I don't know what happened. I really am confused. I'll find them later. Sorry about that. The good news is it's, it's up here on the screen. I will get this for you and figure that part of it out. And if uh, we go that way, if you want to check with Shelly or whatever, or just take a picture of it, that'll work too. At any rate, let's go over this here. Um, caring for about the church's poor, that uh, we talked a little bit about yesterday. Again, this comes from visiting people and caring about them. This part of doing this for deacons and deaconesses is a non-done job. And it really needs to be a focus uh, because you learn so much by visiting people uh, that you'll never ever learn just by casual conversations at, churches on, at church on Sabbath coordinating a program for visiting and integrating new members. What, you, what I encourage you to do is to meet with the elders from time to time. Especially say, let's say you, nominating committees typically um, function in the first part of the calendar year and they finish their work prior to June and in July the new officers take, the, take their place. How many of is that true for your, your church? Okay, some work on a calendar, January to December basis and, and so on, but often many, especially those with schools, do it the other way because it fits in more to a school uh, schedule and summer schedule and that kind of thing. If you're, whenever your church officers take charge, 
is a time to kind of get the slate cleared, get everybody together, do a little bit of planning and organizing, and working through some of those uh, uh, issues that are moving the church forward. And I encourage elders and deacons and deaconesses to get together and have a meeting together, and especially to talk about some of these areas like visiting. How are we going to break up the visiting of the church? One of the best ways to do visitation is for couples to do it, husbands and wives, um, especially if they happen to be elders and deacons and deaconesses and that kind of connection there. Or it may be two deacons going and visiting. Or it might be a deacon and a deaconess going and visiting now, or an elder and a deaconess going and visiting. So let me explain that to you for just a moment. If you are an elder and there's a need to go visit a, a woman in a home and there isn't gonna, there's not a husband there and all that kind of situation, elders should never do that on their own. Male elders should never do that. Now there's some churches that have females and I'm not part of that discussion either. Um, but uh, elders, a male elder should never go with an, uh, a deaconess who's not his wife in a car together with nobody else with them. Yes? Whether it's deaconess or woman or whatever, just shouldn't be doing that. Just don't do it. It just leads to challenges and potential problems and even just the appearance of evil is bad. Absolutely. And even in this day and age, there are challenges, whatever you do today, but at least those are respected ways. And two males visiting a female, yes. But some females are not comfortable, and especially if they don't know you, all right? Now, if this is somebody, you know, somebody in the church, everybody knows everybody, and do you mind if we stop by and visit? Oh, yeah, no problem, or whatever, that's fine. But um, at any rate, when, if I, when I've had to visit church members, a woman in particular, and I needed somebody to go with me, well, my wife was not available, I'd get in my car, and I'd go to that home, and I'd ask the deaconess to go and meet me at that home, and I'd go into the house together with them. And then when we leave, she gets back in her car, she goes home, and I go home to my home. And we are able to accomplish that. I encourage people to visit two by two. There's a lot of good reason for that, and ministering to the needs of people. I've had situations where women called me and said, I want you to come and visit me. And I said, well, I need to bring somebody with me. No, I need you to come by yourself. Ding, 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 ding. That's an alarm bell right there for whatever reason. I don't care what her reason is. It's an alarm bell that says there's problems here. And the simple answer is, I'm sorry, I don't visit on my own. And that's just how that is. Now, there are times when pastors do need to meet with people, but there are ways of doing that at a church office when somebody else is present and not behind locked, closed, no window doors, okay? And you just have to be careful in all of that process. I'm going way off track here, but I wanted to bring that up. Visitation is very important. Do visitation, do it together, plan it together. And as elders and deacons and deaconesses, figure out how you're going to minister to the community of believers that you have. You can do it geographically, you can do it all kinds of different ways, but plan that and make sure that everybody on the membership list, whether attending or not, is included in that visitation process so that nobody falls through the cracks at any time. One of the worst things that ever happens is people say, nobody ever came to see me. I went to that church for 30 years and nobody ever visited me in my home. And uh, anyway, visit prospects, interests, give Bible studies and prepare people for baptism. Teach the children of the church. Do what? 
be concerned about the children. Our kids are leaving our churches at drastic rates, alarming rates. Part of it is because we as church members haven't cared about them. I know of churches where the older members, some of them are deacons and deaconesses, actually don't like kids. Well, you know what? Why would a kid want to come to a church where the people don't like kids? And if you don't have any kids coming to your church, you might as well just get the funeral sign, put it outside. We're having a funeral for the church. It'll be in about five years, but, you know, come on over. We're dying our church. <laughs> and I don't mean dying it with color. You're dying it as a, as a place. So care about the children of the church. Find ways of nurturing the children in the church, including them what was going on. You know, I, this may seem like a stretch, and I look back at it and I say in some ways it is, but I'm not sure it is. When I was a young man of about 12, 13 years old, the PA guys at the church, deacons that were functioning back there, they got me involved in helping them with the PA in the church, and I really love doing that. I still use that skill, and, well, skill might not be the right word, but I still use what I learned in that, in pastoral ministry and all of that. They got me involved. They taught me things. They included me. Okay, I was the pastor's kid, but they could have treated me a lot different than that, especially because I was the pastor's kid. And I'll tell you what, if we would just do more of including our kids and giving them a job to do and some including their, you know, bringing them over to the church and having them help you clean the church and doing the other kinds of things, what a difference it would make. That's what I mean by teaching the children of the church. It also gives you an opportunity to teach them about the Bible along the way. It might be a subtle little illustration of what's going on at that particular moment, the experience you're having, and, and how it relates to life and living it as a Christian. Or it might be a formal Bible study because that young person that is helping you clean the church goes to public school and they've been invited to play on the football team, but they play on Sabbath. How are you going to minister to that person? That's teaching the children of the church. Lead a small group. Train youth to be junior deacons and deaconesses. Help parents prepare for their child's dedication. You know, you've got a family in the church and, and a baby's just born. You know, visit that family. Maybe develop a strategy of how you can help that family. What can we do to minister to you? We're so glad for your new baby. Um, and we just have some, uh, we have a book or two we want to give you that talks about raising children to love Jesus. And, and uh, we want you to know if you ever are struggling with parenting, um, we want to do what we can to help you. And I mean, you, you understand what I'm saying? I'm just, you're thinking broadly about the opportunities for ministry that are here. Organize retreats and workshops at your local, at your local church, or maybe take people uh, away and, uh, to an area where you can train them, not Camp Asable necessarily, but maybe a camping trip, I don't, whatever, just retreats and workshops that can be used to train and do a number of different things. Counsel those with problems, train deacons and deaconesses to lead out in various church activities as appropriate, and then when conflicts arise, visit those in conflict and help them find solutions to that conflict. Um, I've just got more detail than I had in the other one here. Some of the items here of giving Bible studies. Oh yeah, help with evangelistic meetings and do so willingly. Probably the best help you can give in an evangelistic meeting is go to the evangelistic meeting. Oh, I've been to evangelistic meetings for so long, I know all of that. You know what? The best witness 
and you, the best Bible study you can give is being in that meeting. I've had so many people who are interested at the meetings that I have taught, and after they get along for a while, they begin to realize this is a Seventh-day Adventist meeting, and they, and they go to church on Sabbath morning, and they see a hundred people in church on Sabbath morning, but at the evangelistic meeting, they're five. And they say, what's this? They don't understand because they catch the vision for what it is and they don't understand why it's not happening. Care for the needs of the elderly and the handicapped in the church and the community. Think about the community. You have the opportunity to reach out into that community and begin to minister. What if the deacons and deaconesses took it upon themselves to go to the mayor of the town where your church is present and said, what is the greatest need you have in, for the physical plant of this town? And he might say, look, we've got a park over here we've been trying to clean up and, and we just don't have the res financial resources to deal with it right now. But, or it has some physical work that needs to be done. The children's play equipment needs to be uh, cleaned up and repainted or whatever. What if the deacons and the deaconesses got together and went into the community and they did that in that community? All of a sudden the community would say, who are those people? That Seventh-day Adventist church has been here for 30 years. We didn't know they even existed, let alone cared about this place. You understand? Am I being too sarcastic? Or am I being realistic? Uh, organize and promote community activities and programs uh, and other kinds of things. One of our churches, a pastor and together with the leaders of the church, developed a drug program, had a tremendous drug issue going on in their local church, in their local community, and they helped to deal with that. It's a challenging area to be in, so I'm just telling you, this church decided to take that on because they cared about their community and dealt with that. And there are other community service programs that you can be involved with as well. Lots of opportunities there. During the church services, things that you can do, obvious communion service, every church deacon and deaconess understand that area of responsibility and deal with it. The baptismal service, yes. Do what you can to make it a special uh, experience for those people. Organize your church so that the elders, the deacons, the deaconesses know what their task is going to be. Who's going to get flowers for the lady who's being baptized or, or some recognition for the man who's being baptized? Who's going to uh, um, uh, prov uh, you know, give them the baptismal certificate? Don't leave it all to the pastor. Have some kind of process that's done that recognizes, makes it a special day for that person, not just where the person comes in, says their vows, is baptized, and goes home. Something that, in, that accomplishes that when people are baptized and cares about that. Then don't forget to help the church with the follow-up to all of that. The discipleship handbook, that's an important part of the process. Are you as a church, you're the spiritual leaders, are you teaching these new members? Are you as deacons, deaconesses, and elders handling this process of developing this with them? Serving the congregation, ushering, caring for the offering, you know, being an usher is a good thing. If your church suddenly is getting full, praise the Lord. But if it's getting so full that people are coming in and they're standing there looking for a seat, learn to usher. Ladies and gentlemen, learn to usher. Don't just let people struggle. There's not enough room to sit and they some walk out and go home because they can't find a place to sit. Help them find a place to sit if you've got something like that going on. By the way, in caring for the offering, and then I'm going to... Stop with this a little bit because I want to make sure you've got any questions. You can deal with that. 
Make sure you have a good process for caring for the offering. When the offering is collected on Sabbath morning, it should be collected and taken back to a place and it should be counted. And it should be counted not by one person, it should be counted by two people, never less than two. You usually don't need three, but two people is appropriate. They should sign a sheet of paper. You should probably have one that recognizes that. They should sign a sheet of paper, both of them recognizing that that is the amount of money. It was so much cash, and if it's in envelopes, you don't get into those envelopes, but you can flip the envelope open to know how much is in it, not who gave it. Okay, that's the way those envelopes are designed so that you can recognize that. You're doing that for two reasons. You're protecting yourselves and counting that money, and you're also protecting the treasurer. Because if you don't count that money, and that money is handed off to the treasurer, the treasurer can take all the tre money they want, and nobody will ever know that it was gone. They could take $10 every week and go away with money. Just nobody would ever know that $10 was gone. You should be caring for that, but you should be counting it for your protection and for theirs. And they should want you to do that. If anybody resists that, call me. Call the treasurer of the conference office or whatever. We'll be happy to work through that process. All right, I've talked about a lot of things. Do you have any questions today you've written down here? Let's talk a little bit about that today. I've broadened your horizon, but I haven't covered everything. Anybody else got questions here? Let me take your questions and kind of deal with them. Any more? Some of you already asked from the floor, and that's perfectly fine. So that's good. Um, oh, yes. Absolutely. Um, uh, this is an important question. Does the conference recommend the deacons and deaconesses be screened through online programs like Shield the Vulnerable? By the way, the program is no longer Shield the Vulnerable, just so you know. It's um, something volunteers, and I can't remember what it is. I haven't gotten in my head yet. But uh, the answer to that, I'd have to double check exactly with HR how they process that, but I would say this. The reason that we screen is because of children. All right, so if you as elders and de or deacons and deaconesses, elders as well, are going to be involved with children, you need to be screened. <clears throat> now, not all deacons and deaconesses are going to be involved with children. But I personally would say, after all I've said in the last two days, I hope you are involved with children wherever that screen was, all right? And if you're going to be involved with children, you need to be screened. And uh, so I would encourage you to volunteer for that. Take it back to your church board and suggest that that's going to happen because people involved with children or whatever need to be screened. And if there's any question on that, give us a call. But thank you. That's a really good question, and that's an important question. Right? Pardon me? Then they cannot be involved in anything that has to do with children. Because if they refuse it, there's usually a reason. And it may be just privacy, that's fine, that's whatever. But I don't care what their reason is. If they refuse to be screened, then they absolutely cannot have any official responsibilities or unofficially get connected with kids that you know about. Because that would be a problem. It's a legal problem for us. I encourage you not to do that. Verify volunteers. That's it. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that. Greg? Yeah, and that's usually what happens. Mm -hmm. And I, I would suggest, we're living in a day and age that I, 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 it's just horrible. When I started in the ministerial department about six, seven years ago, 
I get about one of these cases a year or less where somebody would call me and we have this issue going on in our church. I'm getting that call like once a month now. And uh, there are lots of reasons for that. Part of it is more information, more disclosure going on, more connection and relationship to that. So you need to be alert to that whole situation. You need to know what your screening process is that's going on in your church, what needs to be done. And then you need to, uh, if you get into a situation where people are coming to your church that you do not know that you haven't been part of this church, be on the alert and think about it. Before you start, if somebody starts attending your church, don't just putting them into positions and offices. Find out about these people. I don't care how good they are, still find out about them. And, uh, and, and recognize that. And many times there are people that are going from church to church that have this kind of a background. How do we get the leader to do something? Um, ask, we only have, uh, oh, a uh, in relationship to communion, I think I understand that. And she only has people do, the, okay, all right, all right. Yeah, okay, I get that. Let me broaden the scope a little bit. One of the challenges you have when it comes to leadership roles and people doing various kinds of things is sometimes people get very territorial of various areas of responsibility. And that's why you do training like this. And I really appreciate the question because I've kind of touched on it, but not directly. And so this is a good place to end today. And that is that when you're dealing with uh, leadership responsibility, it's not about power. It's not about authority. It's about ministry. Ministry means broadening everybody's perspective, getting as many people involved in ministry as we can. The problem is when we as individuals begin to think that this is my only claim to fame or my only, uh, the only thing that makes me feel good is when I get to do this piece of it and allowing somebody else to do that threatens me and makes me feel not important anymore or not valuable anymore. There are lots of different reasons that peace people will, will uh, become territorial and will hold off on those kinds of things. And churches have to find ways to begin to identify that. And when we begin to run into that, there are a number of different ways, and that is treat it as a conflict issue, for example, and minister to them, and sit down and talk to them. And one, that's one of the things I recommend is Matthew 18, go and talk to them, and then try to help them to realize this is a ministry opportunity for them, not a guardian. They will do better with their ministry if they will share their ministry and allow other people to be involved. And they will, uh, the church will recognize that and they'll be valuable. Um, talk to the pastor about the issue. And, in, and as the, with a pastor, or maybe the head elder, strategize about how this is affecting you, how it's affecting the church, and begin to find a solution to it by sitting down with that person and developing a strategy. When you sit down with them, try to find out why they do that, why they feel that way. That's a question they may not have even thought about. And then try to help them to understand how valuable it is for them to expand their ministry. Also, Sometimes that is the only thing they thought they did as a deacon or a deaconess. Now it's time to help them to understand, whoa, look at all they could be doing and should be doing. Don't just limit it just to that. I'll end with a quick story. Oh, I'm way past time. Quick story. I had a lady. She's dead now, so I don't feel too bad about telling the story. She had a ministry she started down in the Detroit area. It's a very valuable ministry. And uh, she liked to be able to do this ministry, and she was just all about that ministry. But I tell you what, sharing that ministry with anybody else was something she just couldn't do. 
She just had to be in control of that ministry. And I, I told her, unfortunately, not too long before she died, I told her, I said, one day you're going to die. And this ministry is not going to be able to go on because you haven't allowed anybody else to be involved. If you want this ministry to be connected and to be involved and to be able to help people in the future, you need to share this ministry. She died. The good news is somebody else took over, not because she encouraged them and helped them, but because they were willing to get in there and take over even after it got done. We can expand our ministry. We do good if we share that ministry. That's what God's called upon us to do. It's a good way to train people and help people. Hey, you're a great class. Appreciate it. I hope you can come back and we'll talk about conflict, conflict and theological circles. Let's have a prayer just before you walk out the door. Father in heaven, go with us, I pray. Help us to do the work of deacons and deaconesses and elders in a way that lifts up the name of Jesus and helps the church to grow and to be a blessing in the church and in the community. Thank you in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.